So the scene here is not a happy dinner party. John has actually prepared us for this all along. He's been telling us that there's going to be a betrayal. Do I have any Hamilton friends in here? You know right from the beginning of the play that Aaron Burr is going to be the fool who shoots Alexander Hamilton. And you're not sure if you know you're going to be in the room when it happens, but you know it's going to happen. That's called dramatic tension. It's a tension that builds to the moment of the incident. That's what's happening right here. And in a sense, this is a very unique situation for Jesus and his friends. But in another sense, this betrayal, this tension, is representative of all of the troubles that loom largely over your life and mine. Anybody have any dramatic tension in their lives right now? Anybody have any things that are looming over you? Circumstances that are weighing down stress that's in your life right now? Yes, you do. Inevitably, we have to come face to face with whatever it is that looms largely over us. Death. Job loss. Mental illness. Health issues. Relational breakdown. All kinds of troubles loom over us in this world. And we've got to face them at some point. Our hope this morning is not that following Jesus makes us exempt from trouble. Our hope this morning is Jesus said to us, take heart, I have overcome those troubles for you. And if Jesus has overcome his troubles in our place, he's going to overcome through us the troubles that we face. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Not that we're going to have a trouble-free life, but that Jesus is going to see us through every single one of our troubles because he has overcome this world. What I'd like to look at this morning is how exactly does Jesus do that? The trouble of his betrayal has come. How does Jesus overcome this betrayal and what implications does that have for our lives? How does Jesus overcome and what implications does this have for our lives? Another way to ask the question is, how does Jesus show his power over this betrayal? How does he do that? Two ways. He predicts it and he confronts it. Jesus predicts this and he confronts it. First, let's look at his prediction. Just as Jesus finishes washing his disciples' feet, he gives them this explanation, this teaching about why he's done this. And he says this teaching isn't, all, isn't for all of you. I know who my true disciples are, and I know that one of you here is not a true disciple. And then he quotes Psalm 41, which speaks of the betrayal of a friend. So Jesus, quoting King David, is saying, just like King David 
was betrayed by one of his friends, so too I, the son of David, the Messiah, I'm going to be betrayed by one of my friends too. Now notice, look at verse 19. Notice why he's making this prediction. He's making the prediction for a certain reason. I'm telling you this, Jesus said. I'm predicting this ahead of time so that when it happens, you might believe that I am he. In the next 24 hours, these men are going to ask some real hard questions. Jesus is going to be hauled away and executed. And so some of them are going to ask in the same way that this man that I've been following for the past three years was dragged away and executed. Is that going to happen to me? Like, what have I gotten myself wrapped up in? I thought he was the Messiah. I've devoted my whole life to him. Now he's dead. What am I supposed to do? And I thought we had something here. I thought we had a group of of friends that were all in this together. And one of them was a traitor the whole time. Do I really want to stick around here? Do I really want to be a part of this? In hard times, we ask the hard questions too, don't we? When life gets difficult, when following Jesus starts to get really hard, we ask ourselves, what have I gotten myself wrapped up in? And when we're disoriented and confused, we can start to wonder, is this even real? Like, is Jesus even who he says he is? Am I really a part of this movement? Am I really a Christian? And when relationships inside the church go sideways, we start to wonder, do I really want to stick around? Just like us, these men are going to face a time of testing. And so Jesus knows this, and he's predicting it to prepare them. He wants their faith to remain strong when it's tested. So look at what he gives them here. He gives them strength, faith-strengthening truths so that when the time of testing comes, they'll keep following him. That's what he's doing here. Now, don't get confused right now, okay? I said in the beginning that we're looking at two main things. We're looking at Jesus' power over this betrayal. The first thing we're looking at is his prediction of it. What I'm saying here now is that his prediction was given to them for a reason. And the reason that Jesus predicts this is so that he would strengthen their faith when this betrayal goes down. Now we're asking, we're looking at, what are the specifics that Jesus is giving to them so that their faith remains intact? That's what we're looking at. You guys with me? So what is it that Jesus is giving to them to strengthen their faith? Three things. The first one is obvious. Jesus cares about you in your trouble. He cares about you. And whatever it is that's looming over you, whatever it is that you're facing, Jesus sincerely, 
For real, for real. Like he cares deeply for you. How do I know this? Who's the one that's going to be betrayed here? Jesus is going to be betrayed. But Jesus is not thinking about himself. Who is he thinking about? He's thinking about all of them. And because he knows that what's about to come is hard, he's acting to help them. He cares. Like he really cares for you. This week, earlier this week, I got a phone call from a friend who knew that I was having a rough day. And he said to me, I would like to ask you to consider giving me one of these things on your plate to try to remove that stress from your life right now. Caring friend, right? Helpful friend. I also take that to mean that the Jesus that I've been casting my stress upon and my burdens upon and crying out to, asking for help, hears my prayer and then works through my friend to come to me and say, how can I help you? I care about what you're going through. How can I help? Guys, he's doing that in your lives all the time. Like he really does care about you. And he really acts to help you in your situation, in your trials, in your troubles. He cares. Secondly, Jesus plans. He plans. Jesus predicts all of this because his word foretold this because he's the one who planned this. Jesus is not caught off guard by this betrayal. And even though he knows it's going to be hard, it's going to be hard for him and it's going to be hard for them, he's planned this and it's planned for all of their good. He's going to use this, even this evil, for good purposes because that's what God does. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I want you to, I'm predicting this to you so that you would believe ego emi. That's the Greek phrase that John keeps using to say, I am. Jesus is declaring here, I am God. And only God can take the evil situations of this world and use them in such a way that they turn out for his glory and your good. Jesus wants us to believe that he has planned this and that he is God. And even the difficult circumstances in your life right now, you're going to one day look back on them and say, I can't believe it. God has brought me through and he has changed me for the good through that circumstance. Like, I don't know. I don't know how all these things are going to turn out in our lives. I don't. But I do know this, and I believe it because Jesus says, well, look back and see, Lord, even the challenging things of my life, you brought me through those things, and you brought me to this place, and your purposes for my life are good. They're good because you do good. We can trust him in that. Jesus is giving him, giving these disciples these faith-strengthening truths. He cares for them. He's planned the things in their lives. And finally, he's going to complete this. Jesus cares, he plans, and he completes. Verse 20, at 
at first glance seems a little out of place. Right? Jesus is talking about the sentness of the disciples and how they're going to be received. It doesn't, at first glance, make a lot of sense. Simply put, Jesus was sent on mission by God into the world to save sinners. And he's going to do that and accomplish his mission by dying on the cross and rising from the, again, rising from the tomb again. Okay, so... Jesus is saying here, I've come on mission from the Father, and I'm going to complete my mission, but that's not where the mission is going to end. I'm going to send all of you, you apostles, which literally means sent ones, I'm going to send you, and you're going to preach the truth of this message until all the ends of the earth know. And here we are. It worked. Because we're sitting right here, right now. Jesus promised that he's going to take his mission through his people and proclaim it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth. And church, I'm telling you, that's what this church is about. That's what this church has been. That's what this church is. And that's what this church is always going to be about, the mission of Christ, to preach Christ until all tribes and languages and tongues know about this Christ so that they too can be saved. That is our mission, and not anything is going to stop that mission. But this also means that for you personally, for me personally. Listen, Jesus is not the type of guy that like starts something, gets bored of it, and doesn't finish it. Jesus completes always the mission that he started in you. So he, if he began a good work in you, if he drew you to himself, if he caused you to have faith and belief in his gospel, if he began a good work in you, then he is going to complete his mission. He's going to bring you through whatever it is that you're going through, and he's going to finish the work that he began in you. You can have faith this morning, not in yourselves. You can have faith that he who began a good work in you always finishes what he started. These are, these are supposed to strengthen our faith, right? He really does care about you. He really has planned all of the details of your life and he plans to use those for good and he's going to complete every detail of your life in such a way that you're going to get to heaven and worship him. That's supposed to strengthen our faith. We've got a big test coming up in our family. October 15th, my son Silas goes for his driving test. If you have not taught your kids how to drive, it is not for the faint of heart. I regularly, in the passenger seat, are like pumping the brakes. He's doing a good job, though. Now, if I do my job right, on October 15th, Silas is going to know how to drive. He's going to know how to parallel park. I'm predicting it. I'm telling him it's coming. I'm saying this is going to be on the test. I don't want him being caught off guard because in the moment, I want him to pass the test. I need him to be driving right now. <laughs> My wife and I are 
not in the Uber business for a reason. (laughs) All I'm trying to do with Silas is what Jesus is trying to do here. The test is coming. I don't want you to fail the test. I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to be rocked by this trial in such a way that you fall away and stop believing in me. I'm preparing you now. I'm predicting this. I'm strengthening your faith because I want you to know in the midst of the trial, I haven't gone anywhere. I care for you. I've planned this and I will complete it. Hold fast to me. Believe in me. Follow me. Don't give up on me. I'm going to see you all the way through. That's what Jesus is doing here. So let your faith, church, let your faith be strengthened. Tests, trials, difficulty, it's going to come if it's not here right now. And Jesus is going to see us through. That's what we see in this prediction. So first, he displays his power over this by predicting it's going to happen. Secondly, he confronts it. He confronts it. John tells us in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled, deeply agitated in his spirit. Have you ever been so agitated, so troubled that you just had to act? I remember a time when I was growing up. I had just recently graduated from college, I was home on break over the summer, my dad and I were getting up to go to work, and our neighbor, three kids, parents went out of town, what do the kids do? They throw a banger. The party got away from her, the oldest girl, and it got loud. Now, my sisters and I, I have two older sisters, I'm the youngest of three, My sisters and I were known to have a party or two that got out of hand, okay? So far be it from my dad to get all bent out of shape when a party across the street was still going on at 7 o'clock in the morning. He didn't bother him until this group of kids was hanging out on the front porch. My dad's having his coffee. And it's clear that the girl, the oldest girl, is having a hard time managing these friends. And one guy in particular, he was a little bit older, a little bit bigger, and really loud, is like going off, like being really obnoxious. And you can tell that this girl is trying to settle him down, like, like, and she's looking around, like, I got, and in Western New York, in my neighborhood, you could basically reach out and touch your neighbor's house. Like, it was close quarters. So I could hear perfectly what was going on. And this guy gets like real uppity and and almost like angry and like yells at her and then turns around and like flips off all the neighbors like, here's what your neighbors can do for me. Guys, I never saw my dad jump up and cross the street so quickly. (laughs) He went right up to the guy who acted like a jerk and he said, now do you live here? No. Then whose house is this? Hers. Then you can either listen to what she's telling you or you can leave or I'll call the cops and they'll take you away. And then he said like tenderly to Kelly. He's known this girl her whole life since she's been a baby. Honey, he was a big honey guy. Honey, I'm, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to embarrass you. 
I just want to make sure that you're respected in your own house. And I want to make he's sure that he's out of line. And then he walked back home. And five minutes later, that kid left. I'm telling you the story because Jesus, being so deeply agitated, can't just sit idly by. He's troubled. He's agitated. The treachery of Judas and the satanic force behind it really bothers him. It really upsets him. And so he's acting to confront this problem. But it's important to note how Jesus confronts this problem. We all have the painting of Da Vinci in our mind at the Last Supper. I love that painting. It's just not accurate to this text. It's not. So get that picture out of your mind for a moment. The text tells us, and we know from people who've studied these kinds of things, that in Judaism there are certain occasions, like the Passover, where they don't eat at tables sitting on chairs. They eat lying down. Now, it's important to know the details here. And John gives them to us. In these types of meals, you lay down on your left arm and you eat with your right hand. So the text says that John, when Peter motions to John to ask Jesus, John leans back. And the text literally says that his head is in Jesus' chest. So if Jesus is here laying down eating with his right hand, John is here because when he leans back, all he has to do is look up and whisper in Jesus' ear. Now, traditionally at these dinner parties, the host, which here is Jesus, does something very intentionally. He takes a piece of bread and he dips it in oil of some sort or some of the meal and then he gives it to the person on his left. The person on his left is the guest of honor. And what he's doing in that moment to the guest of honor is saying, friend, I am so glad that you are here. Let's, like, let's really enjoy this together. I want you to be my honored guest. I love you. Now, we don't know but it seems as if Jesus himself passed it. He didn't just pass it down the line. So who is on the left of Jesus? Who is Jesus' honored guest at the Last Supper? Judas. This blows my mind, guys. How Jesus confronts is very instructive for us. I love pressure cookers. I, I love the fact that I can take, or Vicky can take, a hunk of meat out of the freezer, and in like 20 minutes, I'm eating it. But do you know the kind of pressure, the, the intense pressure that's packed into that pot? So much so that every once in a while, it's got a vent or else your kitchen is going to explode. Now, I want you to think for a minute about your life 
being you inside of that pressure cooker. I'm not a betting man, but I'd bet that if I were to follow you around this week and you were to follow me around this week in the pressure cooker moments of our lives, the things that have vented out of your mouth and the things that have vented out of our mouth, we probably wouldn't want to say here in church. Am I right? Are we keeping it real for a second? Okay, shocker, when sinful, weak, tempted individuals are put into pressure cooker moments of life, guess what comes out? Sin. Can you think for a second at the extreme pressure that Jesus Christ is under right here? He knows that in just 24 hours, he is going to be made sin. The thought of all of the disgusting, evil, wretched, demonic things that we have done is going to reside in him. He's going to become those disgusting, filthy things. And being made sin, the wrath of Almighty God is going to be poured out on Jesus. An eternal weight of just anger and wrath. Hell awaits him. And he's talking to his friend. The very friend whose motions are going to set into play that execution. The, the psychological stress alone, that Jesus, the pressure alone would cause most of our minds to snap. You want to talk about a pressure cooker moment. Now I ask you, when Jesus is in the most intense pressure cooker moment of his life, what vents out? Love. Love. If you were Jesus, would you intentionally invite a traitor to be one of your best friends? If I were Jesus and you were hanging out with me and my friends for three years, like in real close quarters, would you be totally oblivious or would you know that I've got a beef with Judas? These men had no idea. On the night before you were going to die, and die because of what this man was going to do, would you be grabbing a bite to eat with him? Would you wash his nasty feet? In my greatest pressure cooker of mo moment of life, would I make this man my honored guest? Would I respect him? Would I be courteous to him? Would I extend my loving hand of friendship knowing that he was going to sell me out to my death? When Jesus is in the pressure cooker moment of his life, he confronts his betrayer with stunning love. 
Here's what this means for us. My friend, if you are here this morning, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done, I don't care where you've been, you're never going to find love like this anywhere else. And Jesus is here this morning through the story of Judas to say to you, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what you've been, I don't care how bad you think you are, I'm extending to you my hand of love and friendship. I came for this reason, to die for you, to rise for you, so that I could extend to you forgiveness and mercy. Come to me. Believe in me. Trust in me. And he's warning us because it's real clear that Judas doesn't take him up on the offer. Judas slaps Jesus' hands away, and he goes out, and it says that it was night. So the light of the world was shining, extending, loving, pleading, wanting him to stay. And he rejected it. The light of the world was rejected, and Judas was consumed and swallowed up by satanic darkness, and that's where he still is. Friends, do not let that be your fate. If you do not know Christ, don't let that be your fate. Jesus is calling you. He would have you. Would you have him? Some of us this morning arrive, and it's been a pressure cooker while now. And you've started to believe that you've actually sinned your way out of the love of Christ. If Jesus treats his betrayer this way, if this is the kind of love that he extends to the person he knows is not going to receive it, how much more love does he have for you? You can't sin your way out of the love of Christ. You can't fail your way out of the love of Christ. You can't escape it. It's divine love that's not based on anything that you bring to the table. It's in spite of who you are. It's in spite of what you've done. It's in spite of how you've lived. Jesus has lived perfectly for you, Christian, so that you would never be separated from his love. So come to him afresh this morning. He stands ready to receive you. And for those of us who tend to grade ourselves on love by how well we're loving people that are really easy to love, this text challenges us. This text does not ask us how well are you doing at loving people that you find real easy to be around. This text asks, how well are you loving those that you don't particularly like right now? How well are you doing at loving those that think differently than you do? Who act in ways that you wish they wouldn't act? Who make decisions in ways that you wish they didn't decide? Are you courteous to others when you speak? Or are you rude? Are you snarky or do you avoid them altogether? 
When these people that you find difficult to love are not around, do you characterize them charitably or do you describe them in ways that you would never want them talking about you? Do you spend time praying for them or is your time spent rehearsing all of your arguments against them and secretly wishing for their demise? Do we need to confront at times with truth? Yes, we do. But according to Jesus, how we confront is just as important as the truth with which we confront. Truth matters. Jesus couldn't agree more. And that same Jesus went to his church in Ephesus and said, you love the truth, but you have no love. You lack the one thing that is supposed to mark your life. And you call yourselves my followers. Repent and return to your first love. So before we speak, before we confront, before we press send, Let's imagine the test of Jesus being present with us because he is. And let's ask him, does what I'm about to say pass the love test? And if the answer to that is no, then don't say it. Or rework it so that you can honestly say, by the grace of God, I'm saying this in love. This is our hope, the Christ in me and the Christ in you wants to display his love through us. He really does. And our responsibility is to say, Jesus, do your work. Love of God, love through me. Even those I'm having a real hard time with right now. Jesus faces his betrayer. He never loses control, not once. Instead, what we see Jesus doing here is mastering the situation. He does it perfectly. He predicts it. He confronts it. And he loves his friends, even Judas, all the way to the end. And since Jesus overcame the looming troubles of his life, he promises to see us through all of ours. So, church, take heart. Jesus has really overcome the world, and so will we. Amen.